As we get going in the book of Mark again this morning, I just want to let you know that the version app that we've talked about, uh, my outline is on there with uh, the scripture we're going to be using. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, starting in, in verse 1. And if you go down in that app, if you go down to the bottom right corner, there's some little dots. If you press in that, one of your options is events. If you click into events, then a map will come up and you can see our church. And if you click into that, you'll get the live version of our, of our, um, of our service here this morning. So... Um, so April 23rd, by the way, can you believe that next week is August? Is that, what happened? What, that, that's terrible. Um, I, don't, I don't know what happened. But on April 23rd, we started a series, John Richardson and I, uh, through the book of Mark. And uh, we called this first little section, The Start of Something Good. And the reason we did is the very first sentence of, of Mark 1.1 1, 1 is, is the beginning, here's how it starts out, the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ or of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And we started to, to navigate through this fast-paced book as Mark, as Mark lays it out. We met John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus the Messiah, and John baptizes Jesus, and, uh, and immediately the Holy Spirit sends Jesus out into the desert where, where Jesus is tempted by Satan for 40 days. And then Jesus comes back, and in Galilee, he invites, uh, he starts his ministry, and then he invites four fishermen to follow him. And uh, he goes out and he begins to teach with this unprecedented authority. And as he teaches, people are healed of these uh, horrible infirmities, and people who are demon-possessed, who are in the middle of these services, uh, are, are set free from the bondage that they've been in. And, and it, was, um, it was unnerving for some of the religious leaders. And, and, uh, and one of uh, Jesus' uh, stories, that, as Mark lays it out, he meets with a tax collector, Jesus. He has dinner with a tax collector called Levi, who we know as Matthew. And, and Levi becomes one of Jesus' disciples, which continues to raise the eyebrows of these, of these religious leaders. And they begin to push in, these religious leaders, and question Jesus on all sorts of things, the Sabbath rules and, and eating rules and fasting rules and all of these religious issues. And then Jesus' ministry with the crowd begins to explode and uh, to the point where Jesus is actually, uh, as he's teaching, has to, to go, sit in a boat on the water because the crowds are pushing in, trying to touch him to be healed. And, and uh, in the middle of that story, we would be in Mark chapter 3-ish here, uh, Jesus invites uh, a group to become his disciples. He invites 12 people to be his disciples. And then and then the religious leaders begin to accuse Jesus. They actually accuse him of, of working under the power of Satan. And, uh, and then we closed our section um, back, back in July or in June with, with Jesus' mother and brothers coming to rescue Jesus because it was so crowded he, he couldn't even eat or so. And so, uh, and Jesus responds to that little interaction with his family by saying, my true family are those who do God's will. And all of these pieces happen, the first three chapters of, Ma of Mark, and this morning we're going to jump right back in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and we're calling this segment, The Signs of Something Great. 
The initial segment was the start of something good, and now we're moving into the signs of something great. So to kind of set the stage, let me tell a story. Um, I'm a graduate of Purdue University. Uh, I took a job in Indianapolis, in the Indianapolis area. I didn't really um, like what I was doing. And so I started to pursue a, a job in sales. My friends who, who uh, had, had garnered some good jobs in sales and engineering uh, were, were playing, a, or they had a lot of free time and they were making a lot of money. And I didn't have a free time and I wasn't a lot, making a lot of money. So I decided to pursue a job in sales. And and um, through some relationships I had, I played a lot of competitive golf going on, some relationships I had through, through my golf, uh, a very wealthy businessman in the Indianapolis area invited me to come work for him. He had a company, it was a small company of about six of us, we were lumber brokers. And um, it was a period in my life where I was so excited about going to work that I couldn't go to sleep at night because of the next day. Have you guys ever been there? <laughs> I want to tell you a secret, and, and when I figure out who my bosses are, they can fire me. But uh, uh, that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the interim. John and I are interim pastors. But um, I'm not like that right now, <laughs> where I, I'm so excited to come back here in the morning that I can't go to sleep at night. That's, that was my point. But there was a time... There was a time when I was so excited, and it was as working for this lumber broker, I was so excited about my job that I couldn't go to sleep at night. And let me, let me lay out some of the things that were going on. The very first week of, of, this, of this job, the owner, who was on 100% commission, just like us three other salesmen, uh, woohoo, for 100% commissions. Um, <laughs> He showed me his check, two-week check, and it was $15,000. And so for somebody relatively uh, new out of college, um, $30,000 a month was pretty appealing. <laughs> and he said, he said, if you make it, which by God's grace I did, this is, this is what you've got. And he promised me that I'd never work an evening or a weekend the rest of my life. Wow. Um, that was a lot of money then and still a lot of money. And... and the dream of becoming a yuppie was coming true. Some of us older people remember the term yuppie. You guys, the younger people, you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. So let me give you a definition of a, of a yuppie. A yuppie is a young, ambitious, well-educated city dweller who has a professional career and an affluent lifestyle. Well, my daily schedule was, was crazy. Uh, there, just like in Indianapolis, just like here, uh, there's traffic in the morning and in the evenings getting back and, and forth uh, through, through the interstate system. And, and so in order to navigate around that, we, we would get to the office after the traffic, and we'd work uh, a few hours, and then we'd head to Bally's Fitness Center, and we would work out. This is the owner of the company was one of the we, and, uh, and we'd have a good workout. We'd, um, you know, we'd ride, ride bikes, lift play racquetball, we mixed it up, and then we'd go to the food court and have a nice dinner or a nice lunch together, and then we'd come back to the office for a few hours, but about 4.30, the traffic would begin to pick up, so at 4.30, we'd leave the office so we could beat the traffic, and then we'd head to the golf course, and uh, that was my life. Now do you understand why I was so excited I couldn't go to sleep? <laughs> that was it. 
No weekends, no evenings, and that every day with lots of cash flow. It was awesome. I joined, um, I joined Crooked Stick Golf Club, which was uh, an exclusive club in Carmel, Indiana, um, and got to hang out with the, the, yuppie, the yuppies of the world. And, uh, and it was exciting, except, except I saw my passion for Jesus begin to dwindle. And, um, and also saw the things that money could buy and the freedom that it gave began to grow in contrast to that. Uh, I'd play golf with most of my free time. I'd hang out with the big dogs of the indie area, and, and my heart was being pulled in the things the world had to offer. And the things that were really of greater importance began to subside. And Anne saw it, and she prayed that God would deliver me from golf, which unfortunately he did. And, um, but the issues were much, were much bigger than golf. And here's a picture of what, this was 1988, what I looked like then. Ann and I, what a, and my parents, what a good looking, haven't changed a bit, have we? And um, the pull of worldly things was really attract, attractive. The accolades from, from this kind of, of a worldly life uh, was motivating. But there was this tension going on inside of me. And, and um, hanging out with the kind of the hoity-toities of the area, like uh, Dan Quayle, who at that time was one of the sinners in, in, uh, in Indiana and soon to be the, the vice president of the United States, in case you were wondering who is Dan Quayle. Um, uh, I'm on the right, by the way. He's in the white shirt or the white sweater with the, the red shirt. Uh, it, was all, it was all kind of a dream come true for a young guy. And it sounds really good, but there was this gnawing uneasiness. And, and I'm guessing that I'm not the only one who's struggled through some of these issues. We are an affluent group of people. We live in an affluent county. We live in an affluent country. You could easily make the case that the United States is the most affluent country in the history of the world. We live in affluent neighborhoods, we go to nice schools, we spend a fortune on education for our kids, and if anyone understands the pull of wealth, we do. But we've also seen a a glimpse of God's kingdom. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or a teenager, uh, we all have felt the pull of money and the pull of of the world and, and how that contrasts with the kingdom of God and wrestling through, how do we, how do we do this? How do we do this? Have you ever struggled balancing the things of God with the things the world has to offer? Does worry and stress of life kind of choke, choke your relationship with God? Does the thought of being persecuted for being a follower of Jesus Christ keep your relationship with God in a private hiding mode? If so, then I think this morning will be helpful. I think it will be helpful. So let's jump right in. Mark chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Here we go. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and he sat out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. So when he says again, when Mark says again, he's referring to the last chapter where the exact same thing happened. And this massive crowd is gathered. And so Jesus gets out on the boat and he sits on the boat and he begins to teach the people. Verse 2. 
He taught them many things by parables. And let me pause, let me pause right there. This is a new thing for the way that Jesus was teaching, this parable teaching. There was a shift in the way that he was going to interact with his massive crowds. And he began to speak in parables, which, which begs the question, well, what are, what are parables? Well, parables are practical stories that have a spiritual meaning. The word parable means something that's placed alongside something else for the purpose of clarification. And Jesus is trying to clarify the kingdom of God. He's come to earth from heaven, and he's trying to give examples that will bring clarity to what the kingdom of God is like. And with the crowds, he begins to speak in these parables. And notice it's parables plural. It's not just a parable. And so Jesus would string groups of parables together. But this morning, we're just going to focus on one parable, just one. Let's keep, let's keep going in, in verse 2. He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching, he said, Listen, listen. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. And still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. And then Jesus said, He who has ears, he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus wraps this parable story with this imperative call to listen. He starts it and he says, listen. And there's this this imperative push to it. Hey, listen. And then he closes this parable with, he who has ears, let him hear. And again, there's this imperative push. I am saying something very important. Don't miss it. Listen, listen. I have a message for you. Listen. And Jesus takes this very common career uh, in, in the day of Jesus, agriculture, farming, seed planting, that would have been understood in his day on the Israel land where there were paths where people commonly walked that were hard packed. And there were lots of stones in the soil, uh, both on the top and then underneath the surface. And, then, and there was this common occurrence of these big thorny bushes, weedy things that, that grew in the soil. And finally, there would be these patches where, where it would be good soil, where you would, you would have a sense of being able to plant and, and produce a crop. I wanted to give you a picture that kind of captured or encapsulated all of that. And, and this was the best I could find. You can see up in the kind of the top right corner some hard-packed paths. And then you can see as you move closer to the bottom of the screen there, the rocky soil where, where it would be really tough for something to grow and sustain itself in the middle of those rocks. And then you can get a, a picture of these big thorny bushes that are growing in the middle of the rocks. And then in the far back left of the, of the picture, you can see the ground that would be considered good soil with the rows of crops growing in it. This is typical Israeli 
ground. And it's very possible that as Jesus is teaching on the lake, he's looking out and there's a farmer standing in something like that and is sowing seed. And Jesus begins to, to tell a story, to paint a picture of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it seems like in this story that Jesus laid out, this parable, the seed is the focus and the seed falls on four different soils as the farmer sows the seed. And, and, and for most of his listeners, and this is fascinating, for most of his listeners, that's the end of the story. That's all they got. No explanation. And then Jesus would move on to another parable, and on to another parable, and on to another parable. And it seems like Jesus would, would kind of like give a teaser and then just move on. Which, which makes me and all of us, I think, wonder, what, what are you doing? Why would you do that? And evidently, the disciples were just as puzzled, and they began to push in. And let's look at verse 10 through 13. When Jesus was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. And he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that, and he quotes a prophetic word from the book of Isaiah. He says, so that they may be ever seeing and never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Well, let's unpack this just a little. So we find out that after the crowds had left, and we don't really hear exactly how that all plays out, but after the crowds had left, the disciples and the others with the disciples gather around Jesus and they begin to ask him about the parables. And in the book of Mark and also in the book of Luke, this, this uh, parable of the sower is given in all three books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you uh, look at the book of Matthew, we, we get a little more clarification of what they're asking Jesus. In Matthew um, chapter 13, they're asking him this, why do you speak to the people in parables? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? We don't get it. And if you look at Luke's version, the question that they're asking is a little different. And, and they, they were told that the disciples asked Jesus what this parable meant. But in Mark's version, the one we just read, all we get is the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. And can you picture it? One disciple is like, hey, why did you, what are you doing? Why do you teach like this? And another one said, yeah, and I don't even understand what the first parable was. Yeah, I don't understand. We don't get any of this, Jesus. I mean, Mark is just kind of laying it out. We're, we're confused. We're confused. But here's what I want you to get. I think this is the most important piece. I want you to capture this, and I have a slide up here of, of this. Only those who cared enough to ask questions to Jesus personally regarding the meaning of the parable received answers to the parable's meaning. Only those who cared enough to ask questions to Jesus personally regarding the meaning of the parable received answers to the parable's meaning. If you didn't care enough to push into a relationship with Jesus that turned into real conversations, you missed gaining the secret or the secrets of the kingdom of God. Which, in my mind, then sets up another series of questions. Why? And what's up with this prophetic word from Isaiah that Jesus throws in as the explanation? Well, Jesus says, um, he, he quotes from Isaiah 6, 
And, and the quotation from Isaiah 6, 6 says that he speaks to, to people in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might, might turn and be forgiven. And it almost seems like Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, I'm doing it to cause this. But if you look at, at the book of Isaiah, and specifically chapter 6, you find out that, that um, there was this prophetic word to Isaiah of what, what people's hearts were going to be like right before the Messiah comes. In Isaiah chapter 7, the very next chapter, uh, is when, the Isaiah, when God gives Isaiah a word uh, about the Messiah. Matter of fact, we quote it every Christmas. And if you've ever watched... Um, Charlie Brown Christmas, Linus quotes it. Here it is. This is the very next chapter, Isaiah 7. It says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And if I could, what I think is happening here is when they say, why do you speak in parables? I think Jesus is saying, this has been prophesied that this would happen years and years ago. You remember the book of Isaiah? I told you that right before the Messiah come that people's hearts weren't really going to be receptive. That even though they're hearing my words, they're not going to really get it. And even though they see me, they're not going to really recognize me. And so what I told you would happen, prophetically, we're in the midst of it. I think that's the simplicity of it. But Jesus doesn't just camp out there. He actually, he actually moves past that question pretty quickly and moves straight into the more important issue, and that is the explanation of this particular parable. So let's go there, starting in verse 13. This is, this is where Jesus begins to explain what the parable meant with his disciples and the others who, who cared enough to ask. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How will you understand any parable? It's as if he's, he's saying, look, if you get this one, you're going to get it all. If you don't get this one, you're going to miss the foundation of it all. Do not miss what I'm about ready to tell you. This is pivotal to you understanding the kingdom of God. Verse 14. Here's the explanation. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, they hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and desires for other things, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Wow. Jesus begins to, to explain what's going on here. And he, and he compares the soil to people. And he really doesn't talk about soil. He gives four groupings that this represents of people. And the first grouping are people like seed along the path, the hard-packed ground where people walk. And when these people who are like this hard-packed ground hear the words from God about the kingdom of God, Satan actually comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Notice that even the hard-packed people 
are seen as people that God's Word has been sown in. And also notice that this is the only soil that Satan is mentioned to be actively at work in. Interesting. And maybe you're here this morning and you've rejected Jesus in the kingdom of God. And I want you just to realize that from Jesus' words, Satan has been actively at work in your life and he has stolen the kingdom of God right out from under you. And if that's you this morning, I beg you, I beg you to listen to Jesus, to listen to what he is saying. Listen to the words of Jesus. The second group of people that Jesus breaks out, uh, he says they're like seed sown on rocky places. They actually hear the word and at once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root and they can't because of the, the lack of the depth of the soil, they last only a short time. And Jesus pinpoints the thing that trips them up. And here it is. Trouble because of the word or persecution because of the word. It seems that when the cost of receiving the, ger- the Word of God brings trouble or persecution, the- these groupings of people just bail. They were really excited and full of joy. Here comes some trouble because of the Word. I'm out. They bail. You guys have seen it in your life. I've seen it in my life. People who, who are really excited, they make Jesus their Lord and Savior, and-, and they fizzle out. And there may be some of you here this morning who would label yourselves in this camp. And I just want to encourage you again. Jesus is crying out, He who has ears, let him hear. The third group of people that Jesus talks about, he says they're like seed sown among those big thorn bushes. And these thorns are like big pointy thistles that suck the moisture out of the soil and they keep the real crop from maturing and growing. Uh, And they never really reach the goal of the farmer. I mean, a farmer is sowing seed so that he can get grain and make, make a living. And this group evidently hears the word, but something transpires that chokes the word of Jesus and makes it unfruitful. No grain. It, it tries to grow, but the growth is choked out and it never bears fruit. And, and to a farmer, this would just be a waste of time, a wasted crop. And, and Jesus makes very clear what these thorny things are that trip people up. And he lays out three things. He says, the first is worries of this life. The second is deceitfulness of, of wealth. And the third is the, are the desires for other things. These three things, Jesus say, they come in people and they choke their ability to bear fruit and to be useful. And as I told the story at the beginning of my message, this is where I found myself as a young person who had made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And yet I found myself in this in this time where, where the pull of the world was choking out the life of God. And I was not, I was not a fruitful God-bearing, fruitful Christ follower. And I wonder how many of you find yourselves in, these, in the same place, where you feel the noose, the noose of the things of the world tightening up those thorny weeds around your neck. Which brings us to the fourth group of people that Jesus referred to. And he called them the good soil. The good soil. And and take notice, there's only one soil that Jesus referred to as good. Jesus has issues with all the other soils. They don't bear grain. Only the fruit-bearing soil was described to Jesus as good soil. And the verb tense in this 
in this good soil is different than all the other verb tenses. The verb tense in this good soil is, it has a sense of carrying on and continuing and persevering. So when he says they hear the word, they accept the word, and they produce the crop, it's a hearing the word, accepting the word, produce a crop. Hear the word, accept the word, produce a crop. Persevere, they persevere. And in the book of, uh, or in, yeah, in the Luke's version of this, the word persevere is actually part of, of the explanation. It's part of the English translation. But I think we lose a little of, of the difference. This good soil is, is a persevering soil. It pushes through. And Jesus says that, that um, the good soil is, is, is the only one that produces fruit, which is why the farmer is sowing the seed to begin with. It's his livelihood. And, and sowing a seed that wouldn't produce fruit or grain, it's like, it's like getting in your car to go to, to work in the morning or to school in the morning, and, and there's no gas in the car. I mean, it's, it's a nice car, no gas. You're not going to get anywhere. That's what it's like for, for a seed that never grows and, and bears fruit. And yet Jesus, he gives this, this promise that these seeds who land on the good soil, they will multiply 30, 60, or 100 times. And again, I think we lose something in the translation here uh, to, to where we're at today. To the Jews of Jesus' day, when he said this, this would have been unheard of. A crop that, that bared 30 or 60 or 100 times would have been a lifetime or a never happen in the history of our life kind of a crop. And Jesus is produ- he's explaining this, this crop that's exorbitant, that's crazy, that's unheard of, that's, that's um, it's bigger than life. And yet this promise from Jesus is that the good soil would have this miraculous, this miraculous harvest. And the bottom line is, is that the word of God from Jesus in this good soil, the word of God that lands from Jesus about the kingdom of God, lands in the heart of people and it multiplies. And it multiplies more words of God from Jesus about the kingdom of God, and it lands in the heart of people, and it multiplies. More words of God about the kingdom of God, and it lands in the hearts of people, and it multiplies, and it multiplies, eventually bearing a crop that's massive. It's massive. Well, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I long for that. I long for that. I dream of that. I want to be part of a, a group of people that live like that, and that, that our ministry and our lives are bearing fruit and exciting and yet, and yet, honestly, I, I struggle. I struggle, and I think, I think you do too, which, which brings us to a, a dilemma, a real dilemma. What do we do when we look at the soil of our heart and we realize that we fall short? What do, what do we do? Where do we go? Is that just the way it is? Well, I think it's important to ask ourselves some questions. One that, that I think is an important question is, do we long for the kingdom of God more than we long for anything else? Are we more excited about the things the world has to offer, or are we more excited about the things the kingdom of God has to offer? Do we long for our own personal happiness more than we long for the kingdom of God? Where is our treasure? I see this tension come to life in, in my world working with high school students every year. Um, we, we spend an exorbitant amount of money to educate our children, to push them off to be successful in the world's eyes, to, to dream these dreams and live these lives. And, and we pour all of these things into our kids. And yet, 
they look at us and they, they, see, they see what we value most. Do we value the things of God more than the things of the world or do we value the things of the world more than the things of God? And they see us go through these churchy exercises and, and, and they know what's real and what's not. And we send them out there and they, there's a tension. You know, you know where I'm going. There's a tension there. I struggle with it with my own family. We all struggle with it. This is, Jesus is going at something that's so important and so foundational for us. So I want to close by giving us a, a challenge this week. A challenge that I'd like for you to do every day this week. It's a, it's a soil sam- sample challenge. <laughs> all right? And on your little handout, your tear out on your, on your handout that you got coming in, I've broken uh, the word SOIL, S-O-I-L, and down into an acronym. And I'd like to ask you every day this week to do a, a personal SOIL sample challenge. And here it is. This is nothing special. I, I was praying about this a month ago on vacation, and I felt like God just gave me this. And I've been doing it myself every day since then. The first, the S is this. Stop and be with Jesus. Stop and be with Jesus. The disciples stopped Jesus and asked questions. If they hadn't done that, we wouldn't have the explanation of this parable. As a matter of fact, do you know that we wouldn't have John 3.16, for God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We wouldn't have that if Nicodemus hadn't have shown up and questioned Jesus. You know, we wouldn't even have that section of Scripture. There's something about stopping and interacting with Jesus that, that causes life to come. And if we're doing this religious exercise and we're not stopping with being with Jesus, then my guess is that we're probably not a good soil. So that would be the S. The O would be to own your own soil state, your heart soil, and own it in conversation with God. Lord, I, I know I got a thorn. I got this big thorny bush, and it's, it's choking. And Lord, I just want to own that, and I want to ask you to forgive me for that. That would be the O. And the I would be invite Jesus to give you the heart of a good soil. Lord, I recognize that I have rocks and thorny stuff growing. I invite you, God, to give me good soil. I invite you and I ask you to love me so much that you would till the soil of my unclean heart so that I could be a good soil. That would be the I. And then the the L would just be to, to listen, to be still and listen like we sang about earlier. By the way, you guys did a great job with, with worship. Thank you. But you guys, that was great this morning. So the S-O-I-L, stop, be with Jesus, own the state of your heart, invite Jesus to give your heart, you the heart of the good soil, and listen. This week, let's do soil samples. I mean, imagine what it would be like if we were a place that bore fruit 30, 60, 100 times. What, I mean, the sky's the limit. Imagine how life-giving that would be to our community. Imagine that. It would be awesome. Well, I want to close by just praying. And so will you you bow your heads with me? Oh, Lord. We stop this morning, God, and we invite you to help us. Lord, we own the the heart soil that we have, and, and we invite you to come in and do the tilling that's necessary so that we could be good soil. And Lord, this week, I ask that you would help us to 
to be still before you, to listen. We give you permission, Lord, to bring your kingdom to come and your will to be done in our hearts. And thanks for your word that's transforming. In Jesus' name, amen.